Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The U.S. Geological Survey has turned to quantum technology to help it with the next generation of challenges in geological science. It established a cooperative research and development agreement, a CRADA, with a quantum company called Q-Control. For details of what's going on, we turn to the director of the USGS National Innovation Center, Jonathan Stock. Mr. Stock, good to have you with us. Thank you very much, Tom. Pleasure to be here. First of all, let's begin with what problems USGS has that you're trying to solve that quantum technologies will help. Then we'll get into what the quantum technologies are. Let's bring your listeners in. Many of your listeners will be aware that we are in the middle of an energy transition and we're moving into a future where we use electricity in different ways and we want to store that electricity and that takes minerals. And it turns out that the minerals we need to store our electricity and batteries, while that technology is constantly changing and we may see new minerals come on, right now the minerals we need are in short supply and subject to disruption from, let's say, political events. So we have a national need to improve our ability to detect and assess those minerals in the subsurface. All right. And so how do we do it now? And how would quantum technology help improve that? So ideally, we would walk around with a large flashlight that would shine into the subsurface and we would see the things we need. Sadly, that flashlight does not yet exist. And so instead, We depend on a host of geophysical techniques that are, in essence, ways of sounding the subsurface. For instance, some of my geophysical colleagues will fly gravimeters over Earth's surface and measure gravity. And the interesting thing about gravity is that although we're taught that it's 9.81 meters per second per second, it actually varies a great deal uh, when you start moving out into those decimal places, right? And the reason it varies is because there are rocks of different density in the subsurface. So one of the tools that my geophysical colleagues have to map the subsurface is by measuring very precisely gravity. And when you move your gravimeter, which measures gravity, over a big dense body, the spring extends a bit more because gravity is a bit higher over that really dense body. It's attracting mass. And so if you're canny, you can fly your gravimeter around and measure variations in gravity that tells you something about what's in the subsurface. Right, and it can tell by the reading whether it's lithium or iron? Well, we're not that good yet, but it does tell us bulk density. And so one of the things that we try and do as geologists is we try and paint a picture of what the structure of the subsurface is. We use lots of different techniques. In this case, I'm focusing on gravity because it's, well, relative to the sensor that we're going to talk about, the quantum sensor. So we use gravity and we attempt to differentiate rock bodies in the subsurface. What does that mean? It means that we tell a big, dense rock from a light rock. And so for viewers, for instance, granites are typically a relatively low density rock. That's the light stuff that often winds up in our countertops. Let's say a basalt or a gravel or a dark and dense rock. And so we can essentially tell where those rock bodies are on the subsurface. And then if we're really canny, it's guilt by association. We can look at the geometry of that rock body and say, well, this geometry suggests that this is a mineral deposit. And then we go to secondary tools to find exactly what kind of minerals are in that. So it's guilt by association. And it's about imaging that structure in the subsurface and improvements. And so the quantum part is a dramatic improvement. 
All right. Yeah. So what is the quantum technology? I mean, you mentioned a spring. I guess that's a term of art, but there's something pulling down and then you get a readout. That's the old school. Like for those of us who suffered through physics classes in high school or maybe even college, right? You had a spring and you watch how that spring changes uh, as it gets accelerated by, for instance, gravity. The modern day survey hires contractors who take very large gravimeters. These are sort of like, you know, small Volkswagen sized gravimeters. They fly them around in planes. It's very expensive. And we get a relative sense of what gravity looks like, and we can turn that into a subsurface map. Now, notice the challenges there. One of the challenges is it's really expensive, so we don't do a lot of it, or at least we don't do as much as we'd like. And the other challenge is it's really big, and so therefore we typically only do it over large areas. So the promise of quantum in this case is to shrink the size of that gravimeter and also at the same time to either keep the accuracy, or even in some cases, we hope improve it. And so we're talking about taking an old instrument that's large and expensive and turning it into a much smaller, lighter weight instrument that's less costly. And that means that we get to shine our flashlight into the subsurface many more places with much higher resolution. We're speaking with Jonathan Stock. He's director of the National Innovation Center at the U.S. Geological Survey. And the fact that you have a CRADA with this company that makes this quantum technology. Sounds like this is not something that's commonly commercially available then yet. Not at all. And in fact, as the name implies, it's research, right? So we are working with Q Control, and of course, we're interested in other partners as well to explore whether their software and sensors have the capability of getting us much lower cost, much higher resolution subsurface data. Of course, it's a CRADA. It's a Cooperative Research Development Agreement. So well, will it work? We don't know. It's research. We have a strong belief in this company and some of the others in the field that they have developed the tools that it takes to interpret this quantum data. And in fact, if you talk to them, they'll tell you that one of the ways they do that is they're essentially watching how atoms fall in Earth's gravitational field. So you've got this instrument, you're flying it around on a small platform. Maybe it's a drone, maybe it's an airplane. And then you're essentially watching how atoms fall inside the instrument because the rate at which they fall tells you, well, the gravitational accelerant. Now imagine all the challenges to doing that while you're in motion. It's kind of like riding a unicycle and doing trigonometry at the same time, right? Because you know the atoms are uh, moving around not just because of Earth's gravitation, but also because, well, the plane is moving or the drone is moving. It's moving up, it's moving down, it's moving sideways, it's rolling. So all these different accelerations also influence. And then on top of that, there's the inherent noise that's in quantum techniques. And so the premise of Q-Control and other companies like that is that they can essentially do all the calculations that are required to remove that noise. So that's the trigonometry on a unicycle. And what is the nature of the sensor that would be pointed down there that contains the atoms? And, you know, just give us the big picture here. There's some atoms in it. What kinds of atoms are they and what's looking at the atoms? (laughs) That's a great question. Q-Control, of course, are the experts here, but essentially we are shining lasers through these falling atoms and using diffraction patterns to tell us the rate at which particular atoms are falling. They have a variety of different elements that they use. And of course, there's a research industry built up around this. 
as you can imagine, the real challenge here is in taking all the noise out because people have learned with some degree of confidence how to do this problem when we've got a big sort of Volkswagen size instrument sitting stable on Earth's surface or relatively stable. The challenge is, okay, well, now what happens when you make it a lot smaller and start moving it around, right? And that's where all of the sort of trigonometry and use cycle comes in because you've got to take out all the accelerations from not being still and all the inherent noise in that quantum system. And for the details of that, I mean, that that's a cue control question. They're, they're good at sure. that, and, and I wouldn't want to speak over them on that. And with respect to just quantum measurement of Earth phenomena, Besides gravitational fields, are there other things potentially that could be measured? Yes, but we also have an interest in working with them on another geophysical measurement called magnetometry, which is essentially measuring the direction and strength of the magnetic field on Earth. And you can imagine for similar reasons, if you have charged particles, they will orient. And once again, you can look at how those orientations happen at atomic levels and get, let's say, If you can get the noise out of the system, very accurate readings of direction and magnitude for the, you know, the little magnetic compass that's sitting there in Earth's field. Now, at the moment, you happen to be tasked to NASA. So is that because they think this could be useful and not just here on Earth? Well, we do have an interest, and as part of that data, we're exploring the potential to use these kind of low-size weight and power sensors, in this case, gravimetry and magnetometry or gravity and magnetics, to explore for resources off-world. As your listeners will know, if you can take uh, small, lightweight things off-world that don't require a lot of energy, (laughs) that's a lot better than taking really large, uh, weighty things that require a lot of energy. So small size, weight, and power mean potentially we could develop maps of the subsurface of off-world bodies, whether that is the moon or Mars. And by doing so, find the things that I think the nation needs from us, which are, well, resources, batteries for a new economy, volatiles on the moon, as well as potentially hazards, faults in the subsurface, um, and let's say sources of volcanic unrest. And just a quick question on the computing architecture of this. If you have something flying over with the sensor on it, you know, Artificial intelligence, for the most part, algorithms require graphics processing units, GPUs. They use a lot of power, and so you would have to have a lot of computer up there. Or do you envision this something where the data is gathered and then the analysis would be done when the drone comes back from that spot? Well, as your listeners will know, that's a trade space, right? So it it costs energy to transmit data. It also costs energy to do calculations on board, aka edge compute. And in this case, it looks like the trade space plays in favor of doing most of the calculations on board and then using the resultant models that one might develop on your edge computer on board to direct the sensor where to fly to take the most impactful next measurement. So that style of data acquisition is called payload-directed flight or perhaps model-directed data acquisition. And it's premised on the notion that ultimately you're flying the sensor around so that you can make a really good three-dimensional model. And so why would you not build the model on the fly and then fill in the parts of it that look like they're the lowest resolution? And so that, again, I think that plays to the notion that edge compute is an important component here because it reduces the amount of power you have to use to send lots of data back to Earth to be processed, or let's say from a remote place on Earth. And just a final question, do you envision someday this technology will be refined to the point that those that would commercially exploit the existence of these rare Earth elements 
would have a better idea of where to start looking and digging because that's when it gets expensive when you start trying to mine and refine. Well, absolutely. And that is the appropriate federal role here is to buy down the risk on these kind of technologies so that uh, in the future we can reduce the impact of finding resources and extracting them. And the role of this particular crater is to test the notion that these technologies will improve our ability to shine that flashlight into the subsurface to find resources and hazards. Jonathan Stock is director of the National Innovation Center at the U.S. Geological Survey. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's... Um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize 
particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. 
And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.